Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Fair warning, guys. This is an emotional episode. Jeremy Richmond is my guest. He lost his daughter in the shooting in Newtown, Connecticut in 2012, the massacre there. Um, I am recording this. We were, we record the introductions to each podcast a couple days before we post them usually. And um, I'm recording this on a day after yet another mass shooting in America, this time at a newspaper in Maryland. Uh, at this point, five journalists killed. And uh, it's easy to kind of get numbed to these headlines, um, but there's a real human cost, and you're going to hear from uh, a dad today and uh, a meditator who uh, had a pre-existing meditation habit that he's resuscitated during during the course of his recovery. And I just want to tell you that this is an, an incredible story, and there are moving and uplifting parts of it. And also very practical takeaways. So a great episode. Much more uh, from Jeremy coming up. Uh, but first, uh, let's uh, let's lighten things for just a minute and, and take some phone calls, and then we'll get back to Jeremy. So my usual caveat, I am not a meditation teacher, not a mental health expert, uh, just a reporter and meditator. So I, I, I haven't heard these questions in advance, so I just do my best to answer them on the fly. So here we go. Call number one. Hey, Dan. I just wanted to say thank you. My partner... And I have a mindfulness and resiliency consulting practice. And what we really appreciate is the time you take to both understand and teach people about the differences of the different types of meditation. And I think that those nuances sometimes are passed over. And I know you say that you're not a teacher, but we just wanted to tell you that you've been teaching us and that we really appreciate everything we've learned from you. Thank you so very much. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't uh, I don't hear a question there per se, but, um, you know, I'll just say on the issue of of being a teacher, you know, I think it's possible to go get a teacher training in a, you know, reasonably short order as a meditation teacher. And and I think that's a legit thing. Um, that being said, the in the meditation school in which I've been reared, which is. Theravada Buddhism, old school Buddhism, those folks, they do a lot of training. I mean, years and years and years of silent meditation retreat. And that's just a different level of authority you can bring to the table. Authority, understanding, maybe a better word that you can bring to the table as a teacher. And that is what I, I don't have. So I do a reasonable amount of daily meditation and I go on silent meditation retreats and I can teach somebody basic meditation. But when I say I'm not a teacher, that's what I'm referring to. Uh, I'm married to a physician who has this incredible amount of training, and you know, many of the meditation teachers I know have comparable levels of time served in training before they go and teach. So I'm just trying to respect that when I say I'm not a teacher. But anyway, I really appreciate the, uh, your your message. Thank you. Uh, let's go to call number two. Hey, Dan. This is Gus. Uh, I really appreciate uh, your work here. And I've been using the app and reading the new book as well as your old book. And one thing I notice when I sit down to practice, I tend to get this sort of anxiety-like feeling in the pit of my stomach, almost like butterflies, but a little worse. And it's very similar to what I used to call anxiety. Um, I stopped drinking two years ago, started therapy, started some support groups, and um, I, I no longer have anxiety except at the moment when I sit down to meditate, close my eyes, I tend to get a little ball of something in my stomach. So I was wondering if you have any advice about that. I sometimes make that the, the focus of my meditation, and it often does go away, but almost inevitably, as soon as I sit down, close my eyes, I start to feel a little bit anxious. So I wonder if you have any tips on that. Uh, thanks again. Bye. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, first of all, that is a towering achievement, uh, stopping drinking two years ago. So I don't want to let that just fly by. That's a big deal. Um, and congratulations to you for doing that. And best of luck, because I know it, it's, you know, you're always, as they say, in recovery. 
as as with so many of the questions that you guys call with, the answer is always embedded right in the question. Um, uh, I I think you're doing what you should do. Uh, the move in mindfulness meditation when anything arises is to, and it will get annoying to always hear this, but it is always the thing to do, be mindful of it, investigate, take a look at it. And so you will see that uh, you will learn a fundamental lesson that we need to learn all the time, which is that it's it's going to change. It may get worse. It may get better. Quote, I use quotes around that word. It may get more intense. It may get less intense. It may go away. Uh, it may come back. But everything changes all the time, and that is the thing to learn by looking uh, by looking at the these physical sensations that are arising, and then wh- how what kind of thoughts are arising in in relationship to the physical sensations. You can watch that whole feedback loop and uh, see that everything changes, and also learn something about your mental habits. So mindfulness is the move every time. The one thing that came to mind for me as you were speaking um, is you said sometimes it goes away. And I don't know if you are falling into this trap, um, but sometimes we have this trap when when we're meditating, we try to bring mindfulness to whatever arises, uh, often something difficult like a pain in the knee or some sort of set of physical sensations that are reminiscent of an emotion or an actual difficult emotion. And our goal is to make it go away. And actually that can have the, in my experience, can have the paradoxical effect of making it worse uh, because you're, you're, you have this desire to make it go away. So I, to the best of your ability, you might want to not have to drop the agenda or to even better to notice that you have an agenda of making it go away and just be mindful of that. Because what we're trying to do is just say welcome to the party to whatever arises. We're not trying to get rid of it. And if we notice, it's natural to want to get rid of it. And just notice when that arises too. Joseph Goldstein, the great Joseph Goldstein, my meditation teacher, who, yes, has never come on this podcast and <sighs> – We'll get him someday. If you want to hear more from Joseph, like he's all over the 10% Happier app. So he, he's he's a gem and he's all over the app. Anyway, he's never come on the podcast, but I'll forgive him for that. He will at some point. Joseph has this great little uh, phrase that he invented. He calls it in order to mind, that we're often mindful of something like a physical, uh, an unpleasant physical sensation in order to make it go away. So the thing to do there is just to notice that, oh, yeah, this is in order to mind. Because, again, the game is to be, you know, non-judgmentally aware of whatever arises. And why does that matter? You've heard me say this a million times, and I'm going to say it again. Because when things arise in the rest of your life, a a difficult emotion, uh, an urge uh, that may be unconstructive, uh, a difficult physical sensation, you don't have to be so reflexively yanked around by it. That's my shtick. Uh, those are your calls. Always appreciate your calls. Um, the number uh, for leaving a voicemail is right there in the show notes. So go ahead and, and call. We really we really love them. Um, so back to Jeremy Richmond. Just to say a little bit more about him. He is actually a neuropharmacologist by training. Uh, more than 20 years of research and drug discovery experience per his bio. He is um, now, though, out of that business, although he does do some lecturing at Yale, where he's a faculty lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry at the School of Medicine there. But but really, most of his energy is directed towards something called the Aviel Foundation. Aviel, or Avi, uh, is the name of his daughter, who... Um, was murdered at um, the Sandy Hook Elementary School uh, in December of 2012. And uh, the Aviel Foundation, as you will hear, does a lot of very interesting work in the area of uh, brain health and mental health. And so he's the co-founder and CEO. Um, but I should stop talking and let you hear his story because it's remarkable. And I just remind you, if you have any part of you that's a little reluctant to to go there, um, there's there are some amazing and upbeat twists here um, in this story that I think you'll want to listen for. So here he is, Jeremy Richmond. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. So tell, tell, how, did, how did you get into meditation at the start? 
Well, so, you know, it started out way back when I was really young. I was taking, a, you know, it was like a Karate Kid story. I was taking martial art classes at the YMCA in uh, in Arizona. And uh, and my, um, my instructor was kind of a really traditional old school um, martial artist, and he practiced Zazen. And um, so Zazen is the Zen term for sitting, sitting med- med- seated meditation. Exactly. Yes. And he didn't introduce it that way, but it, it became part of my instruction. And, and, uh, and he instructed me um, at that time. I had no idea why, but he instructed me, you know, we're going to, we're going to sit and we're going to count our breaths. And I, I want you just to, to not move and see if you can get, get as high as you can count before you're distracted and just take note of that. And, we're going to come back and after our, our lesson, we're going to do it again. And you see how high you can get. And we did this very regularly. And, and then eventually he, he changed it up and he said, now we're going to count on our exhales. And I didn't have any idea why that would make a difference, but it was an experience. And then he said, now I want you to think about the things that distract you that when you, when you realize that you're distracted and what those are and kind of look at them and examine them. And um, eventually we got up to where he was having me kind of like, I want you to examine the space in between your breaths and kind of live there for a little while. And at the time, they kind of all seemed really esoteric and a little mumbo jumbo. But as I got older, I still practiced it a lot and started studying kind of uh, Zen Buddhism and Buddhism and and uh, the different claims that people would get from uh, what you could get from meditation. And this is, you know, in the days of um, especially, you know, before neuroscience got involved and kind of legitimized any of this, mm-hmm. it was, you know, hokey and hippy trippy, but I was raised by, I'm half hippie. <laughs> so wait, one parent was a hippie? <laughs> My mom was uh, from the land of crystals and karma, quite the hippie and uh, really interested in this. And your dad wasn't not into that? My, my dad is uh, born in the Bronx, very uh, serious, straight-laced, uh, scientific how did these two get together then? I don't know. I mean, they're 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 both fun, and they both enjoy you know life in in all of its ways. But my dad's very analytical and and objective, and and meditation kind of lived in the other arena of the universe that he wasn't interested in. It was hokey. He was, you know, my mom was the spiritual, my dad was the sort of the scientific. And now I think that the uh, it was a perfect marriage because sure. The blending of the two is a is a great and powerful thing. That's right. Um, later on in life, I, I I kept pursuing it and realized that it had all kinds of benefits that you write a lot about in Tempers at Hampier. The idea of being able to uh, you know find a calm place so that you can respond instead of react to situations, and I think that that's the biggest boon that I've gotten from from practicing over. You know, most of my life, the vast majority of You say you started with what you now know to be Zazen, and then you started to study more about Buddhism later. Did, did you ultimately fall into a kind of practice that you adopted or a formal? No, they they all ended up, you know, um, they all ended up being kind of the same thing, just seen through different lights. Of, uh, they would call the, the idea of paying attention to sensations and and sounds and input from the world as you know, being mindful or being present or, you know, in, in whether you were studying your breaths or a spot on the wall or uh, a koan or anything like, uh, you know, it was a way to train the brain to focus on something until that monkey mind steps in and says something and taps you on the shoulder or gives you an itch that you can't seem to ignore or, or that, that perseverating thought that you regret that you didn't say something until those things pop in your head and and then that's where the work comes in and they're all kind of the same is is how do you look at it and kind of let it go and move on to back to your focus again and did you find yourself practicing every day oh yeah for for years and years of of my life i practiced every day particularly through college and everything from you know people i think it, it helps them to know that to practice, I mean, you could sit for two minutes and still have benefits, you know, but it would be anywhere from two minutes to, to 10 minutes to that 10 minutes was probably typical to maybe if I had the the luxury of a lot of time on my hands, I would spend a, a fair amount of time. And and 
you got into meditation way before it was cool. Did you tell people? <laughs> no, we didn't. We didn't talk about this. I mean, my, my 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 friends all my my roommates and my friends all knew that that I did it, but it was you know hippy trippy still and kind of goofy and you know I was uh, I was used to. I was the I was the shortest kid all through school, all the way into college. So I was used to taking people, kind of picking on me and stuff. So I think I grew out of caring. How tall are you? I'm five six now. Five, six. <laughs> On a good day, but uh, you, you're not much shorter than me. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I was I was a little guy for a long time. I know the feeling. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, uh, I gave up really caring what other people thought. I was that kid that. That in school was like, I must have been gone on the day they handed out the How to Be Cool books. Because I always seem to be like, how do you guys know that you're not supposed to wear your backpack on both shoulders? How do you know that this is cool and that's not? And and so eventually I just gave up and suddenly I was cool. Just by owning the <laughs> Just by not caring. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. There's actually a meditative lesson in that for sure. Yeah, letting absolutely. go. <laughs> letting go. So did you keep practicing when you had kids? Well, uh, um. Up into my adulthood, it started to wane. You know, as you start to get busier, you realize you've kind of gone a little bit of time maybe without it. And uh, um, But all the way up until through Aviel's life, we did. And then um, You and your wife? Or uh, I, I did. I, did. I, I practiced it all the way up in, uh, until Aviel was killed. And then, um, you know, it got pretty rocked. And I wasn't really doing much of anything for... A while other than trying to create our our foundation and just wander through through the way that uh through the, the through the cards that we were being dealt and, right and then uh, I realized quickly that you know of all the times that I probably could really use that effort uh, I started back up again maybe maybe a year after and it still has been waxing and waning but still valuable well I want to talk about the utility of meditation in these past few years for you specifically. But, but first, can you just tell me about, just walk me through what Eviel was like? Uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, every parent's going to brag about about their kids. I'm sure that you know that now. And uh, But she was just the brightest light. She had this unbelievable smile that she would just give out gratuitously to anybody. And <laughs> it was really infectious because it, it was just kind of a first child. She was our our first and only kid, and um, and uh, she could light up a room with her her smile and her giggle, and she just had a really fun spirit. She wanted to enjoy things, wanted to meet people, very gregarious. Uh, had a in like a real mature and infinite sense of justice. She could not stand. If somebody something wasn't fair or somebody was being mistreated, she would jump in. Um, I loved the fact that uh, Jen and I really try to to dismiss gender prescribed ideologies, you know, stereotypes of the the man does this, the woman does this, and um, you know. So as a as a result, I think that uh, Aviel was just as happy playing Barbies as she would be superheroes or practicing Kung Fu outside or um, shooting a bow. And she could do more push-ups than anybody in her classroom and could hold a horse dance for two minutes. And, and she was uh, really active. And then she'd throw on a dress and dance around and pretend she was at a fairy at a ball. And um, it was just a uh, free spirit. She liked to, she would sing everything. She would narrate her whole morning, like in a, like a, this ongoing song of "I'm coming down the stairs," and <laughs> and so she would dance around, and uh, I really miss that. I bet, I bet. So, t- talk me about talk me through the events. It was December fourteenth, two thousand twelve. Yeah, yeah. Um, on a Friday, December fourteenth, in the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. Um, she and 19 of her friends and classmates and six of her educators were, were killed, um, in the morning at school. And, uh, how did you find out? Well, it was, um, it was kind of everything drawing up to a close of the school year. And so they had all of the, the little holiday parties and, and things that you would do in the classroom and you were planning your Christmas holiday vacation and, um, 
we had had plans to come down here to the city to see the uh, the Christmas spectacular at the Radio City Music Hall, and so we weren't going to bring her to school that day. Uh, but she's she she said no no we have to go it's uh dad you're gonna, you have to come in um and we're gonna build gingerbread houses and so uh you know we uh it was a special day because I was home from, from I was just gonna work that morning and then head into the school so I got to put her on the bus instead of uh, instead of Jennifer her mom and we were outside and um and as typical I didn't have a warm enough jacket on her so Jen came outside which is just so fortunate. You know, came outside and yelled at me, what are you thinking? Get a jacket on her. So we put a jacket on her, and that's when the bus came. And so both of us got to say goodbye that morning. And um, she got on the bus, went to school, and I went back into the house to sit at the computer and work for a little bit. And I was uh, I was talking to the group my the group that I worked with, and um, the, the other line rang, and I answered it real quick, and it was a robocall saying that there's a – a lockdown because of a shooting taking place in Newtown. And right away, I, well, I forgot to go to the other line and say goodbye, but I, I hung up the phone and went down and talked to Jen and said, hey, I just got a really crazy call. Um, But really in the back of my head, assuming it must be a high school or a mistake. You know, Did they say it was at a school? Just Newtown Public Schools are, are in lockdown. because Okay, of so the reported, schools are in lockdown. Yeah. But then the phones kept ringing, and now we're now we're hearing sirens. And we live pretty close to Sandy Hook Elementary, so we're hearing. I mean, the police cars are racing by our house, and um, and um, Jen called a friend of ours that we know is she's often at the school and and does a lot of things in the in the classrooms. And we called her, and she was there and said, "It's it's our school. It's our classrooms." Um, get here right away. And so we jumped in the car and it seemed like you know, it took us days to get there, but um, uh, with tons of police racing by us and we pulled up and we couldn't get to the school cause it was all blocked off with the full SWAT, you know, team by that point. And so we went into what the, there's a firehouse right on the corner. And so we all went into the firehouse and, uh, and as parents met up with their kids, we realized that there was a, a small group of us that were missing our kids. And uh, Jen and I made a list and started getting people to sign it who hadn't found their kids yet. And um, and that became the, the 26. At some point, did they formally notify you? Yeah, there was, um, there was some... Yeah, unfortunately, I I had run into some of Aviel's friends that were in the classroom, and um, was sparing some details. I, I I could tell things were pretty grim, and so I kind of knew in one part of my brain, I kind of knew it was not going to be good, and the odds were really bad for Avi. And then the other part is like, oh, maybe he's mistaken, and uh, but then uh, eventually. Um, you know, Governor Malloy was there, and the chief of police was there, and uh, and they eventually said, you know, there's there's 26 bodies, and there's 26 names on this list, and things are pretty grim. So. And at some point, did they read off the names on the list, or hand you come over to you and say your daughter's on this list? They they couldn't. I mean, obviously, they at that point they can't identify. They have no idea who the kids oh, are. Okay, so, okay. you know, there's just 20, you there's 26 bodies, right. 26 names of missing people. So obviously those were who were. Sorry, I thought when you referred to a list, I thought they came out with a list of names. No, so You're we, talking about the list you created. We had yes, started collecting. Yes. The, we just said everybody who's Ugh. missing a loved one, write your name here. And So how does it go or how did it go for you? <laughs> where do you – because I project myself into your situation as yeah. – the father of a young child, myself, I, I assume I would collapse right away and then never recover. So how did it go in that moment for you? Did, did it take a while for the weight of it to fully hit you or did you, did it hit you right away? It's really surreal. It's hard to, to describe it. 
the the weight of it hits you right away, but it just sits there, and so there's never a time that you feel like it went away. I mean, it, I, you know, it, it's 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 like uh, getting a bad cut, or you know, or I don't know if you ever broken a bone or anything, and at some point saying, "Oh, it's a hundred percent healed." You'll never, you you would never say that. It's just it, finally, you one one day you realize it's it's better. But uh, in this case, you know, obviously it's a it's a pretty infinite heartbreak. It's uh, but clearly in the first forty eight hours, it's just a blur. Uh, I remember specific things about it, and others I have no recollection other than literally lying on the floor, just apoplectic, just not thinking, just. Uh, yeah, I mean, there you go through all these r- random thoughts just popping in your head. Of what if I hadn't put her in school that day? What, yeah, what ifs. I mean, if I could delete those two synapses from my brain, the what if. Um, but uh, you know, you go through what ifs, and you go through a lot of anger and um, a lot of why, why, and then you go through random weird other things like how should i be feeling how do i feel i can't even figure that like it's so out of control and so disproportionately unreal that it's hard to even really put your finger on what you're feeling and if you're feeling appropriately and how you should be responding and it's just uh it was all surreal um and for for Jen and i we immediately needed to focus on something and and really early um, I was, I was so lucky. Jen said, "You know, we need to get out of bed. We need to keep moving, literally, just physically moving a little bit. So let's just try to find something of beauty to look for, and that's going to be like an active exercise. Find something of beauty, you know, a bird or the way the sun is shining, or somebody doing a kind gesture, or um, and." We did that for a day and realized, like right away, that that's actually super easy and it's a, it's really rewarding. But you can find stuff of beauty. You can find things of beauty everywhere. And how many days after? Two days, maybe. Oh, really? Days. Yeah. So this kicked this kind of survival mechanism kicked in pretty early. Pretty early, and um, and then then we said, all right, let's up the game and see if we can do something of of beauty every day for each other, for ourselves, for somebody else. Um, and that's really hard, actually, you know, to to purposefully do something uh, to give to the world. That's tricky. But uh, but also, in the meantime, we knew that we had to do something in response to this in the sense of finding a new purpose. Uh, there's a, a great quote that, that's attributed to Viktor Frankl, but he was actually quoting Nietzsche when he said, those who have the why can endure anyhow. And we had a strong why, so now there was no no obstacles. We could endure anything, really. And so Jen and I are both scientists, and so we decided to play to our strengths and create the Aviel Foundation to uh, to to study the the neuroscience, the 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 underpinnings of violence, and uh, and the risk factors that lead there, and the protective factors that lead away from it towards compassion, kindness, connection, resilience. And that became uh, our endeavor. And how, how it, and well, that's that's how we met because I yep. spoke at a fundraiser for the Aviel Foundation. And so, so how long has the foundation been in existence? Um, well, so it was, you know, basically by January of 2013, we had wow, that's quick incorporated and f- filled out applications to become a nonprofit and and got that expedited and approved, and we've been going since then so you just knew somehow maybe it wasn't cognitive maybe it was more visceral but you just knew i'm guessing here that either you let this crush you permanently and irrevocably and make you completely useless to the world always or you lean into it and uh, find a way through that honors your daughter in the best way possible. Am I saying that correctly? Absolutely. That's that's exactly it. And the, and the next step that I think is really important and and why somebody hasn't perhaps created 
a foundation that's committed to this endeavor is that, you know, we wanted to prevent others from suffering the way that we were suffering and continue to suffer to this day. So if there's a hope that we can get somebody help before it's another tragedy, then, uh, then that would be everything right there. And so tell me about what, how the foundation is going, what's the work, what has, what has, what work has been done. Um, give me everything. Well, so it's, our mission is really two-sided. It's on the one side is we want to actually fund and foster research to studying violence as a disease that could be prevented, intervened, and cured. And so we have very traditional neuroscience research that we're funding that ranges anything from um, studying the brain circuits that fire in psychopathic violent offenders versus non and see if we can write those, change the circuits from one uh, from the psychopath to the normal individual. We uh, funded a study at the University of Michigan looking at what's called a discordant twin study. These are really cool studies because they take monozygotic, so identical twins, they're genetically the same, that are raised in the same household and environment, but that their behaviors are different, where one of the two of the twins has antisocial, uh, aggressive antisocial violence, and the other does not. And so now you can really shed a light saying differences that you see in the modification of their DNA, what we call epigenetics, differences in brain structure and biochemistry, blood chemistry, must be likely part of the violent behavior. And so those are really valuable because you know the the system is fairly well controlled and um and in this case it was a pilot study i mean at this point we're not funding huge uh, uh studies that that need to be done uh, we're we're waiting for more funding to do that but this pilot study was so successful that they were then able to get real meaningful uh dollars that um, resulted in seven and a half million dollars in funding as a result of the pilot data which is really rewarding um so studies like that. Uh, we also have some clinical studies that are ongoing and some public health uh, programs and studies looking at the consequences of adverse childhood experiences and um, what changes that those can lead to and how can we potentially prevent them and right those uh, uh, adult behaviors. Um, and then we we also have a, a whole army of interns and uh, and and older uh, fellows that we help to fund and encourage them to move into the brain health space, whether it's uh, you know, studying neuroscience or going into medical school eventually to to study behavior or the brain or psychology or therapy or even engineering to to study you know the next machine that can make uh, imaging the brain affordable, accurate, approachable, and reproducible, or um, you know even moving into business world to get people to be more uh, socially fiscally. Uh, responsible. Um, but we also realize that science in a vacuum is really of no value if you can't give it to the everyday person in a way that's completely approachable, digestible, so that when they go home, they can reach into a toolbox and find something meaningful to them personally. And generally speaking, most science is done in this this very uh, privileged tower. They speak their own language. They you know, We speak our own language. We have this kind of highbrow thought process and and that's not of any value if the everyday person can't access it and so the other half of our mission is community engagement and education and that's where we were so fortunate to have you come up to one of our brainstorm experiences to to talk about your experience with meditation and and your crisis moment and (laughs) things like that much more of our conversation right after this quick break this show is brought to you by better help I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today. 
to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring. Where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions. Then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I'm here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and start here. It strikes me hearing you talk about the breadth of your work that Avi, who, as you described her, had this fierce sense of justice, would very much approve. Because this is justice in the most holistic sense, which is like, yeah. let's try to figure out what's causing this and stop other people from having to go through this pain and also... Let's find out if there are ways to treat people who are likely to commit violence so that they don't harm others and themselves in the process. Exactly. That, yeah, I hope that she would be very proud of this. Yeah. You are, if I recall, you are a neuroscientist, right? Right. Um, when I was younger, I wanted to study the brain and, and neuroscience uh, was, it, as far as I could find, there was no undergraduate neuroscience programs um, there probably were, but uh, I didn't look very far. I was in uh, Arizona at the time, and they didn't have an undergraduate neuroscience program at the University of Arizona. Uh, so I studied philosophy for uh, for most of my time there, um, which really was great. And in the meantime, I volunteered and, and worked eventually in a number of neuroscience research labs. And, uh, and then when I graduated... Um, I started a graduate program and I got my PhD in, in neuropharmacology. So I studied how chemicals affect behavior, whether you make the chemicals in your body or you take them in nutritionally, therapeutically, or recreationally, how they affect your behavior is what I studied and what was exciting to me. And then uh, I moved that into, uh, for my postgraduate work, I moved that into much smaller spaces, looking in neurons at how you form like little neighborhoods um, of aggregated proteins, so the, the 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 complexes that come together to help signal and transfer information from one part of the brain to the other, um, how those change in response to activity is is a model that we would pose is how we learn. We call that long term potentiation (LTP), and that uh, I studied how you could recruit different components of a signaling system together with activity. And then I went into drug discovery at, um, at a small biotech pharmaceutical company, um, studying Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, and, uh, and obesity. And then, um, that somehow grew into cardiovascular research, (laughs) interestingly. And, um, and at the time I had really been fortunate in that environment to have exposure to the drug discovery pipeline from the bench all the way to the bedside, which is really fun, but it's also really rare that you get to be on a project from one to, from one end all the way to the other end. And so then uh, I was fortunate to get recruited by a big, uh, large pharmaceutical company, Beringer Ingelheim, which is here in, uh, among other places in the world, but there's this place in, uh, in Danbury, Connecticut, and... That's how we moved the family across the country and um, 
And um, then, and then, unfortunately, a year and a half later, the tragedy occurred, and we right away created the foundation, and that's where I am now. Another what if? Yeah. Uh, what? So you you're not doing that work anymore. You're full time at the foundation. That's right. Yeah. How important for you in your recovery has has been has the process of of taking constructive action through this foundation been? Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't even know if recovery is the right word. Maybe it is. I, I don't know either, to be honest. Uh, you know, it's it's always funny when you've only taken one road. You don't know what the other road traveled would have been. Uh, I guess ages hence we'll be sighing that we could have taken the other. But um, I don't think so. <laughs> but that's all I know. And I think it's been, uh, it would be, it, it would be, I, I suspect I would be bitter and frustrated and lacking a lot of purpose if I didn't, if I didn't do this. Uh, what about your marriage? Because um, a lot of marriages don't survive the death of a child, never mind a murdered child. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, no marriage is, is perfect, I, I don't think. I think everybody has some struggles. And when you add a, a child into it, it really tests the, the the bonds because, you know, if you disagree on how you're going to affect one way of raising the kid versus another, and those get difficult. Um, and and we had our, our troubles, no question about it. But uh, I think we were doing a good job and that it was we both at the end of the day, it was fun and rewarding and we liked it a lot. And when we lost Aviel, you could see how if we had a disagreement um, religiously or politically or if we weren't on the same page on on how to or what how to respond, what we should do, um, then that would be just a profound divide because of that passion that you can you know you can see that we we both luckily were on that same page. So if anything, it really it drew us closer, you know. And you made an interesting and really emotional decision, which is have another kid. Yeah. Well, <laughs> really early in that, in 2013, we knew that we we weren't done parenting. I, I, I'll tell you, other than the day, Friday, 1214 itself, which is clearly the worst day of my life, um, the next to that would be Father's Day, then the following, because, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have any other children and I wasn't a father anymore. And that was just brutal. And we, we so badly wanted to be parents and we really, you know, that was how, that was our identity was, sure, we were scientists and did, you know, we had hobbies and things that we really loved to do, but at, uh, underlying all of that, we wanted to be parents. And so we looked into adoption and um and we had some help from some very kind people that could uh scientifically help us out a little bit and so we have now uh two meaning meaning IVF yeah, uh, who, who, <laughs> yeah. Our, our, our child too is the product of IVF okay so. right on yeah so the the funny question is going to be uh where do kids come from and well, dad goes <laughs> to the hospital <laughs> yeah <laughs> mom goes to another doctor but um, I refer to our kid as the most expensive child. <laughs> well, uh, so now we have a, a three and a half year old little girl, Imogen, and uh, a one and a half year old boy, Owen. And Two. Yep. Yep. I I knew I uh, knew of one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is it? I would imagine there's an enormous amount of joy in being able to be parents again, but. Also, I'm guessing not uncomplicated in some ways. Yeah, uh, boy. And every day we hear different ones. I mean, um, some some th- that are just so subtly beautiful and heartbreaking, heartbreakingly tragic at the same time. Uh, you know, I, I look at Imogen, and she is the spitting image, like a twin of Aviel, and. That's beautiful, and it's just brutal. Sometimes I'll look at pictures that come through, like on the computer slideshow, and I'll just wait. Which one is that? And uh, 
that breaks my heart and it's also beautiful at the same time. They have definitely a little bit different personalities for for better. You know, like it's great that they're both different. Um, and then, uh, but uh, but at the same time, uh, yeah, there's there's nothing better than having that uh, the pleasure of parenting. But in terms of challenges, you know, the other day. Imogen was blowing a dandelion and I said, oh, you know what you're supposed to do? And she said, oh, I need to make a wish. And I said, what do you wish? And she said, I wish my sister was still alive. And <laughs> that chokes me up. That's brutal. And she's definitely, you know, she's old enough. We, Of course, she's going to be raised knowing that she, she had a sister, both of them, Owen and Imogen. Um, but, uh, you know, they're too young to know that she was murdered and certainly not in their school when we want them to look forward to going to school. So that's going to be really tricky. And, um, and we can already just at three and a half, we can already see her trying to guess, you know, like Mm. what exactly happened Mm. and she's making assumptions and we don't want to lie. We don't want to, but you know, she's too young for that. Does Sandy hook elementary school still exist? That's a real controversy. I probably wouldn't want to get into, but yeah, they, they, for some reason, demolished it and then rebuilt another school very expensively on the same site, which is just kind of silly. Is that where these kids will go, Imogen and uh, Absolutely not. No. No, they'll have to go somewhere else. That would be too... I, I mean, I cannot stomach taking them to that same place. Even if it's a new building? Uh, what's the point? With, so what if it's a new yeah, building? Right, I exactly. mean, that's where we would be taking them anyway. That, yeah. The... I said, I questioned myself before when I said I used the word recovery because I just don't I don't know if you if if you ever recover or if you're just constantly in a process of recovery and it brings to mind a beautiful article I read years ago in the New Yorker by a pair a father I believe who had lost a child to illness mm. and he said um, losing a child you get a new organ whose only job is to secrete sadness. Mm. And that really stayed with me years ago. I don't remember much about the details of the article other than that line. Does that ring true to you? That's Yeah, that definitely rings true. I, I try to express, even to very close friends, but I try to express to people the um, fully understanding forever. Like, you will never see her again. You will never hold her you know, feel that weight in your arms, never snuggle, never get that hug and kiss on the cheek. That's like, you will never have that again. That's, that's, and the fact that that's with me in my mind, always sleeping, waking any time of day. Um, and still to this day. Um, but the, the weight, that feeling of sadness, um, is definitely waned. It's waned. Oh yeah. Uh, what role, if any, has meditation played? Well, I, I, I can only speculate. Um, you know, I haven't gone off to retreats. I haven't done any really like ter- incredibly formal training. Uh, but the way I see it, for me, uh, what it's really afforded me in my life is. When I've done in the past very physical things, running long distances or um, you know martial art fights or different different activities that that are hard physically, uh, meditation has given me the ability to examine. Uh, wow, my legs are absolutely burning. I and my brain is telling me to stop running. Isn't that fascinating? Like you could pick it out, you could look at it and say. That's a, that's that's so fascinating how it's trying to protect me. Okay, but keep running. You got another eight miles or whatever. Uh, you know, keep your guards up or whatever the whatever it is that you're doing that you can separate it. And um, I'm not saying that I could separate myself from the. Uh, I was clearly feeling heartbroken, feeling sadness. I still feel those things, but I can look at it and say that makes sense. That is a horrible thing. Um, what a what a terrible hand you're dealt. Keep moving forward. Keep trying to make good out of it. Keep trying to, and so that uh, the the process of you know 
meditation finds those the the ability again um, i think you said it so well and it really resonated with me the the ability to respond instead of react and and being able to do that is hugely liberating because it allows you to move forward uh despite discomfort despite um being uh incredibly overwhelmingly outside your comfort zone just to be clear, respond, not react is not mine. I use oh. it a lot, but it's not coined <laughs> well. by me. It's a venerable meditation cliche. But I'm curious about the utility of meditation in extreme circumstances. You had, by the time to, uh, December 14th, 2012 rolled around, you had a lot of meditation under your belt. Yeah. Uh, was it, I mean, is there, do you have any sense of whether having a mindfulness practice in your life was of any use in what I would imagine? are the worst circumstances imaginable? Uh, of, without question. I mean, being able to still move, to being able to act, being able to think rationally with all the walls crashing down, with all of the wailing and sadness and horror coming out of me and everybody around me, still being able to think, I need to do this, I need to, um, I need to move here, I need to help this person, I need to make sure Jen is okay. I need to eat. I need to, uh, keep moving forward. Um, that, that it without question afforded me to do that, but it goes back to the same. That's all I've done. So I have no idea what it would have been like without it. I don't get to do an N of two. No, you don't. You have N of one. We all do. So, so my hunch is your, your response. And I say you collectively yours and Jen's response the way you describe it to this unbelievably bad situation was so, to use a, light, uh, a loaded term, enlightened, you know, to to want to find beauty, and in particular finding beauty by being of use to other people. Um, I, I, I mean, I just wonder, it seems to me that that may well have been fed by what you learned about your own mind through the process of meditation. Uh, I, I, I've never practiced, a, what do they call it, loving kindness? Loving kindness meditation. I, I'm not till very later, uh, before the murders, but really late in life. Uh, um, do you want to describe for people who don't know what loving kindness meditation so is? So the idea that you, uh, you sort of uh, give compassion, you, give, you send out love to somebody that you know, Somebody that you just a generic somebody you don't know, um, somebody perhaps that you would not normally want to give out some maybe some love to, uh, and then um, to everybody, is that sum it up? Yes. So basically, you close your eyes, you med- you're in the meditative posture, and you are act, you are envisioning specific people and s- repeating these phrases silently in your mind. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you be safe. May you live with ease things like that, and you're doing it, you're, you're just kind of doing it systematically from yourself to a, a benefactor, you know, a mentor, a, a dear friend, a neutral person, somebody who you see but don't have much relationship with, a difficult person, and then everybody. That's the classical progression. So you started doing that late in your meditation career. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and probably a little bit softer than just very methodically, like just the idea of, Think of somebody I, I I care about a lot, and think good things to them, good fortune, mm-hmm. good life, health. Uh, then somebody that you're know, just a generic person on the street corner. Then somebody that I'm having some strife with, perhaps. Um, and I thought that 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 last one in particular is very liberating, um, because you can see uh, it frees you up to see why somebody might be motivated to behave in a particular way. And the compassion of being able to say, all right, you know, I, I'm not cool with their actions, but I can understand why that they would behave that way. Um, it, it's pretty liberating. And taking that specifically, so and it, I mean clearly in two ways meditation has helped me, uh, just in the, in the ability to kind of think despite the sensations that I'm having and the feelings that I'm having and still act. That was probably the most important, but also being able to to accept people's kindness and also to find the ways to and the need to give out compassion and kindness, um, d- despite the kind of the at that time you know it's all about me, 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 
And, uh, and it's actually really hard until you're sort of on the other side of that curtain. Um, it's hard to express to people how hard it is to accept like the overwhelming wave of, of compassion and kindness that you have to receive that with, with the sort of composure is really hard. Say more about that because I have a friend who lost his two little boys in a plane crash, and and oh. so he's a very close friend, and oh, he has been on the receiving end of a giant wave of of compassion, and it's just interesting, you know. Well, I'm still very much in contact with him, and so it's interesting to watch how he receives it. I think he's received it with, un, you know, immaculate grace. Yeah. But I had never thought about it the way you're discussing it. Can you? So can you say more? It's it's hard. It gets it gets overwhelming, and you realize you you want to show your gratitude, but after a while, you've just got you've got none left. You're you're just tapped, and you still need to you still viscerally need to th- to thank people and and then you realize that you have the need to do something too like you need to be giving out and um and people are oh no no uh, you know i i couldn't hear of you coming over and helping me move i of course not and but you, you would have done that before the the tragedy and you still need to it's a, it's a, it's a selfish need to be able to give mm-hmm. i don't th- i think that's really encountered in the fact that the thing i'm this idea is what i'm writing my next book about uh, compassion kindness ah. that it is it's so counterintuitive because we're all in this black hole of self-centeredness in particular i can imagine i would go there deeply if something were to happen to my son but actually the way out or a way out is to be of service. Absolutely, it, th- that's incredibly important to me. And uh, I mean, it's it's a fuel that's in you, and if you don't burn it, it, it I think you just uh, I think you'd spiral into horrible depression, and you'd feel just completely hopeless and worthless. Mm. And th- there's hope in helping, no question about it. That's an incredible. Thing, and it's an incredible thing you've done. Can you just tell anybody who wants to know how to find uh, your organization, learn more about it, perhaps yeah. support it, give it, we call this kind of, um, <laughs> we call this the plug zone. Can you yeah. just give us everything, social media, websites? Absolutely. So it's the Aviel Foundation, A-V-I-E-L-L-E foundation.org. You can find us online. Um, please check it out. You can donate there uh, freely. Give everything you want and can give, uh, and we'll put it to good use. And we're we're more than happy to tell you exactly how we're using it and what we're doing. Any donation that we give, and we say every cent is change, and uh, and we mean it. So whatever you think you can afford, if you don't think that's worthwhile, it is. I promise you. And you can find us on uh, importantly having these kind of conversations on podcasts, um, on social media, with your friends in in your communities, having discussions about brain health about you know talking about your feelings and and uh and your motivations for doing things and and uh and and recognizing that the brain is just another organ that's really important you know if you're on a treadmill at the gym and you're you know you're you're running and you tell the guy next to you man i got a i'm on the stat my doctor has me on the statin because my cholesterol is too high and i gotta eat this crazy diet He's just going to shake his head. Oh, yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah, no problem. But if you said, I'm on this antipsychotic medication because I'm having these horrible hallucinations, you know, he's going to go to the, the machine next over. Cause, uh, but the fact is the brain is just like the heart, the lung, the liver, the kidneys. It can be healthy and it can be unhealthy. And we all need to talk about that and recognizing it and recognize it. It's not a character flaw if you feel depressed. It's not a broken child if they're hyperactive. It's not... It's just another organ, but like the other organs, you're responsible for their health. And so you don't get out of this just because it's biochemical or structural. You need to take care of it. So you are responsible for finding, eliminating the risk factors that lead to violence, engendering protective factors in yourself and in your loved ones and in your communities. And we need to start uh, in our communities and uh, and in this day and age, you can... uh, you can start that looking us up on social media at uh, Aviel Foundation and on Twitter at A-V-I-E Foundation, Avi Foundation, and we're on Instagram and LinkedIn, so you can find us easily. 
I should have asked this earlier. Maybe, I don't know how this is going to go, but um, we were talking about sending compassion in, in particular to difficult people. Do you think you could, could you do that toward the person who took your daughter's life? Well, there's a, so there's no short stories with me. Sorry, Dan. But, no, this, <laughs> let me say, this is a podcast. Well, let me say a couple of things. First of all, this is a podcast. They're designed to be rangy, ram, uh, rambly at times, but in a good way. Also, you're doing great. Thanks. So oh, this yeah. is an incredibly <laughs> difficult thing to discuss, and so yeah. you're, so you should have no sheepishness. <laughs> okay, well, um, there's there's a great quote um, by uh, Rabbi A. J. Heschel, and he said, "Few are guilty, but all are responsible." And I really do believe that we're all responsible for our own health, for the health of our loved ones, and uh, our communities. Um. So there's no question the Sandy Hook shooter was a profoundly disturbed individual. And what led up to that, um, I can only speculate, but a lot of people in the community knew that there were very profoundly disturbing characteristics of the individual from really young, like five years old, all the way up his whole life. His family chose to pull him out of school, to keep him hidden in the house, to give him the rule of the roost there, um, to... uh, to engage with them through a love of firearms. Uh, That's a a strange mix. And um, at the end of the day, why were they so, you know, closed off? Why It comes from this fear, this shame, this stigmatization and discrimination that you get with anything related to mental, mental illness, uh, mental disturbances. And so instead of taking care of it, they hit it. And this is very common. And we need people to recognize that you um, are responsible for taking care of this organ, the brain that houses our memories, our feelings, and our behaviors, and uh, and to not be afraid of it, um, and to not, uh, to not be ashamed of it. And so in terms of forgiveness, no, I'm really effing angry that um, that nothing was done, that there was no intervention, but that that's uh, anger at a lot of people. And uh, at the end of the day, that doesn't bring Aviel back. What will be meaningful is if other people can help to break down this stigmatization, this, uh, this barrier so that people will get help and will be armed with the knowledge that we need to get help to them, which we're not yet. So we need to know more so that we can actually give meaningful diagnoses to brain illnesses instead of diagnosing symptoms and syndromes like uh, answering yes to five out of nine questions on a questionnaire and we get diagnosed as depressed. And you're like, well, duh, that's why I came in here in the first place, doc. I know I'm depressed. But uh, being able to say, you know, little Johnny's got too much dopamine in his right cingulate cortex, which is just a fancy pants way of saying this explains his impulse control problems at school. Here's what we're going to do to work with it. Um, now it's not a judgment on the parenting. It's not a judgment on a broken child. It's this is a fact. Here's the here's the health diagnosis, and here's what we're going to do to try to remedy it. We need to move to that to that arena. So, in terms of forgiveness, uh, I guess no, I don't forgive them, the family or the shooter. But I understand how it could get to that, and I don't want it to happen again. Is it well? There's no question. You're taking a lot of constructive action to take the conditions where this can happen and re- and reduce the likelihood that those conditions arise again. This is an incredible thing you're doing. There's a difference, so in my mind, at least, between forgiveness and compassion. You know, when you're doing or lo- a loving kindness, then you're doing a, a yeah. meta practice that we discussed before. Loving kindness, right. when you you know, there's a role there for a difficult person or an enemy is actually the way it's classically right. defined. Um, would it be too much to put anybody from his family or him in that slot for you? Would that I would imagine, just speaking personally, it would be too much for me. But I don't know if you could, in a meditative pro- posture, work with that. I think I think had his mom survived I I could answer that question um so I don't think I could truthfully answer it t- 
today because there really isn't anybody that was in his direct life that you could blame and say, okay, I'm going to send that person as an enemy, uh, some loving kindness and compassion. You could do it for somebody who's not here anymore though. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think I can. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I don't think I could either. I'm just curious. I don't know if it would help, but if it, if it's not doable, there's no, no way to know. But I do see a role in trying to look at the situation and say, how did it get there? Does that does it make any sense? And I that is a form of compassion. Um, it doesn't even have to be forgiveness, but it is an understanding. And that's actually quite liberating to know, all right, I can see how it got there. Yeah, I think that would be better than blind, omnidirectional rage in uh, yeah. It gives you a. It adds more nuance to the situation. Yeah. Without pushing you to the point of sort of like uh, um, what's sometimes referred to as idiot compassion. You know, just like forgiving anybody for any trespass. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything I should ask that didn't? But I didn't. That I didn't ask. Those are always the things I think of, like um, in the stairwell on the way down. But <laughs> uh, not that I can think of right now. I really appreciate you doing this. I feel lucky to have met you, and I'm glad we uh, set this up. <laughs> Likewise, it's been a real honor, Tim. Thanks. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.